Hi, welcome to Swordnut Radio. This episode is an interview with Joe Trier from How We Roll Podcast, and we're going to talk about horror and suspense in tabletop RPGs. We ended up cutting about 20-odd minutes out of this, which weren't that relevant, but are still quite entertaining, so those are going to head on over to the Super Secret Awesome feed time. You can get access to that by going to patreon.com forward slash swordnutradio and donating $1 or more. If you've got any questions, comments, or feedback about the things we talk about in this episode, you can find us at Swordnut Radio on Twitter or on Facebook, and you can email us at swordnutradio at gmail.com. On with the show. Hi, welcome to Swordnut Radio. This episode, we're doing an interview with Joe from How We Roll, uh, where he's going to teach me all about horror games and <laughs> investigation games and how to be an awesome GM and also how to write scenarios. And Joe is going to get as many plugs as he can in for his published works <laughs> <laughs> during this whole thing. Uh, Joe, say hello to the people. Hi, I, I guess I'm Joe from How We Roll Podcast. Um, and I'm here to do, well, try and do the things that Paul's just said. <laughs> Certainly I'll talk about what I've done and, and take from that what you will. Yeah, uh, we, we're taking advantage uh, here of, um, we both got a day off work, so uh, I've come around to Joe's and we're going to talk about horror RPGs. And yes, it is a vehicle for shameless plugs for uh, his published works. <laughs> so currently available is? Um, I right, say so currently available. I've just written something called the, you'd probably correct my pronunciation, the <laughs> Idol of Thoth, the Idol of Thoth, the Egyptian God anyway. And it's on a uh, drive through RPG right now. Um, you can find it just, if you go on Chaosium's main page, it's, it's, it's number one on there. Uh, number one on their uh, community sales rather than their main sales <laughs> uh so yes chaosum have just come out with a, a new uh platform for community publishing haven't they yeah so that's there so um if you're a dnd person they have the um the dms guild the dms guild where you can use their system and publish on there and the whole world can can buy um and chaosum have done the same thing because they've got something called the miskatonic repository where now anyone can use their system and as long as you follow their guidelines you can publish um, a Call of Cthulhu or a Glorianther mm-hmm. um, scenario or whatever you like um, and sell it on drive through RPG. Yeah. And what's the one that you are uh, in progress with or about to publish? Uh, I cannot talk about what, <laughs> what is currently on, in progress because it's, it's currently up in the air who's going to publish it and what it's ultimately going to be. So unfortunately I can't, I can't, I can't really divulge that, but there is something in the works. Fair enough. Um, and you've also contributed to Fear's Little Needles, haven't you? Yeah. So Stygian Fox, who, um, published, uh, a kind of more mature, um, set of scenarios called Things That We Leave Behind, um, last year. Um, they've got a follow up book, which is, I think it's 21 scenarios all written by notable writers and me. <laughs> <laughs> um, each, or each one is designed for sort of one night of play. I think they're roughly 3,000 words each. Um, and mine's one of those, yeah. So it's called um, Lights Out. Lights Out. So that's coming again in the next month or two, I believe. And both these things you've written are designed to be played in one night. Yeah, very, very much so. So Lights Out is uh, is is very short. Um, it's, as I said, it's about three thousand words, but it doesn't it doesn't include any kind of addition. It it, ha- it could only be three thousand words. There's no description. It's very much um, all the clues and all the signposts that you need to construct a really quite horrible <laughs> one night <laughs> scenario. Um, whereas the Idol of Thoth is, is much longer. I think it came to about seven and a half thousand words and it, it gives you everything you need to play that, that game, including sort of descriptions, keeper tips. I remember us talking, uh, when I think it was Lights Out 
and you didn't want to spoil it any before you give any sort of details to me because you know I'd blab. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you're right, <laughs> I would. But you were, you were talking about it and you were, it was over like Facebook Messenger or something, but I could tell that you were just had that evil look on your face, rubbing your hands together <laughs> and going, Oh my God, this is so evil. <laughs> I think like when you when I, I everyone's process is different, but often I start with a, a concept, and then that concept, as you write, just grows and grows and grows and grows. And then often quite elegant, well, hopefully elegantly joins together into something that's really nice and playable at the end, and lights out. Although it, it definitely does form this really quite pleasing ending, is going to cause some real difficulties for players, like up to the point where I'm not sure if I want to run it on the podcast because of the potential <laughs> endings that could happen. Like it, it really, I mean, I was asked to write something really unpleasant and I feel that we've, <laughs> I definitely succeeded. Um, and, and mine's, and then mine's no, by no means the worst. I mean, I think, um, that the challenge was is to write some really quite mature themes. And I know there's some things influenced by J horror and, um, so you know, really nasty things in there. Although I think there was there was definitely a line. Like I don't think anyone's going to be offended by them. I think there were some things that no one explored by. Again, I don't I don't talk too much about it until it's released. But um, mm. yeah, something really really uh, challenging to play, but also enjoyable. Hopefully, is it is it the sort of um, and I don't know if, if this is spoilerific or not. So feel free not to answer. Is is it more the horror? And I think this is this is one of the, the questions I want to ask. Is like. Is, is the horror and should horror be based more on the situation that is happening to you or the decisions that your characters are forced to make? Oh, well, I, th- I mean, the, the fear sharpening itself has a whole mixture of things. So I think there's some scenarios which are just genuinely quite gross. Like they're, that, that's all about body horror or yeah. um, things that would be genuinely unpleasant to imagine. Some of them are just very difficult situations. I'd put that in my one. So it's like, crap what do I do? Like, so you've got a moral decision. I've got like or... three options in front of me and none of them are good and none of them are something that I really want to have to make but there's a timeline as well and if I, yeah, sorry, a, a, um, a time scale and if you don't make a decision soon something even worse is going to happen yeah. and that's what the whole scenario is based around I guess. Um, so which, so if you're putting together a a, a story to play um, and you're you're wanting things to affect your players Bear in mind you're playing a horror game. Because um, I think the people see investigation and horror going hand in hand, but you know you, you don't necessarily have to have a horrific element in investigation. But if you're specifically playing horror, we, we've, see, we've seen those things where it's um, you versus the universe, the universe is horrible, um, let's, let's lampshade it, it's zombies. You know, people do zombie games or whatever, and it's like, okay, the, the universe is horrible or whatever, but then the real horror comes out, it's, it's not the zombies, it's the people who are the real enemy and it's about the hard choices you have to make. And that's the horrific thing. Or do you go down like the sort of the, the, the grindhouse gore <laughs> splatter thing? Um, like you did with, um, what's, what's the one you had with all the, forget the maggots? Me not, forget me not. Really, yeah, really, really unpleasant. But that, I mean, that really worked on its description. Like it, you really needed those pre-planned vivid descriptions that yeah. you can insert into the relevant points of the story. But I, I'm not, I, I, honestly, I don't know because I don't really think of us. Say, so say, we're not really a horror podcast. I think most of what we do is invest. There's investigations, mm. and then I guess it's quite thrilling. Maybe, maybe that's a better better thing. Maybe we're more of a thriller podcast where we put our, the players are often put in quite difficult situations where they have to think fast and work fast and make choices that have real consequences and often quite quick consequences. Mm. 
I don't know if that answers your question or not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, th- I think we're I think we're leaning more towards like making the players make decisions is, is how you like to do things. Uh, yeah, yeah. For uh, sure. when, when you're winging it as a GM or when you're um, sort of playing the game through, but in your prep, you've got the time to write this. You know, you can't necessarily prepare like what decision you're going to ask someone to make uh, necessarily. You can to an extent, but it's just so random, and the, and the way in which they're going to go is always the way you haven't written. But you can also when you're doing your prep, maybe have a bit more time to write these lurid descriptions that are going to be more gory or could be more unsettling. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think probably about 50% of my prep time is writing descriptions of people, places, things. Um, I mean, even like things like lists of adjectives and verbs just say that as I'm describing on, on the flyers, you often have to do as a DM, that at least it's going to be emotive and evocative. Yeah. And I think... And maybe it's because we're a podcast and so I've also got a listener in mind, but I think that's the kind of DM that I always want to be. I want to yeah. paint those pictures for, if not the players, then the listening audience. Mm. We had that discussion um, sort of privately in Sword and Radio and one of the things that came out with that was, you know, where do we want the podcast to go, blah, blah, blah. And I think people were shocked with it that I said, if I didn't have listeners... I wouldn't put nearly as much effort into this. Like I, I would not be bringing my A game. Uh, like we did a few things that we didn't record, a few sort of pre-gen Star Wars thing. I was just reading it out and going, yeah, whatever. And, so, and I just realized that's what I would do if I didn't have this push of mm. um, a listener. And so even if you don't have a podcast and you're not putting things out, it's a good thing to bear in mind. It's like, what if it were? What if it were being broadcast? What if, if people were listening? And it will push you to do better. And in doing better, you'll enjoy it more. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think... I mean, I think I probably would do quite a similar thing if if I was um, wasn't recording it, I guess, and didn't have an audience. But I think that's only because we would never play every week. I think if it's I mean, it's been years and years and years since I've played a weekly game or DM'd a weekly game anyway. And I think the level of prep required, I think you know. So let's say if we play for five hours, I've probably done five hours of prep, hmm. um, and and maybe more than that. Just thinking about options and how I would present <laughs> this character and what if they would do this? Like, how would I handle that? And, you know, sort of thinking through the scenario. So, yeah, we I definitely put extra prep in, but we have the advantage of only playing every four weeks or so. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who don't manage to play once a week. Like, it's the ideal that people do. But we, you know, uh, Sword Note Radio, we play every week that we can. Uh, and sometimes we can't, and, and very often, well, very often we can't, but it is something that causes problems that you get problems in relationships, you get problems with uh, work and all sorts of stuff because you have to sacrifice things that like, so no, this, this can't move. And so we must turn up and must do this every, every, every week. And it is so hard. So I don't think there's a lot of people who do, but I think there's a lot of people who think they should. Um, but maybe, especially if you're doing something that needs a lot of prep, like horror, like investigation, um, every, every episode you need to sort of, sorry, every time you sit down and play with your players, you need to then go away and go, right, how has this changed the world? And think about how it's going to affect things and then plot out what might have changed from there. And that's lots more prep than your simple hack and slash dungeon crawl. Yeah. Whatever. Although you could argue, I mean, yes and no. I think the problem with hack and slash dungeon crawls is to keep them interesting actually does require quite a lot of prep. And I think probably ultimately it will end up turning into something huge that needs needs time and otherwise people can get bored ultimately everything turns into investigation because if you're simply wandering around killing things it's a board game yeah yeah and the advantage of something like call of cthulhu is there is just a huge volume of very very high quality 
scenarios to go out and play. I mean, you could play every week for a year and never have to write your own stuff because mm. there's just so much good stuff out there. And I think that's that's something that's good about Call of Cthulhu and, and, and the horror genre as well, and specifically Chaosium Call of Cthulhu, um, that there is that repository out there that you can dive into and it's not seen as like a fallback. It's not seen as a failing as a GM. I think in Dungeons and Dragons, you're expected to have this whole yeah. epic world building thing. You're, you're supposed to have built a world. You're supposed to have done that. Like, well, uh, whatever. And it seems like copping out to get a pre A lot of people really, particularly within the D&D world, it, it, it feels that a lot of people really, I don't know, look down on people that have bought, you know, things like yeah. the Curse of Strahd or the Rise of Tiamat and these, these just really amazing resources. But I think people have had bad experiences with them and i think even with curse of straw which i think is um i haven't i mean i haven't read storm consider or two annihilation but the mm. ones i've read curse of straw is by far the best and i don't think i would play it out of the box you know mm. I've, I've put huge modifications on it to make it the type of game i want to play but well, I, I think it's great and i think people in, shouldn't in, look so down that so much in the dungeons and dragons uh, world as well they've changed their attitude on that as well they've changed their attitude on how it should be played like there's a there's a point uh, at the start of each module that says you know you can change what you want in this like they specifically have to say it because like you said earlier some people don't realize that um and they're 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 having people play through the tomb of annihilation like loads of podcasts doing the podcast annihilation to show how different it can be yeah everyone's really different aren't they like i've listened to a few of them and i mean there's some really good ones out there um some of them are hardcore serious some of them are just (laughs) <laughs> yeah. a bunch of lunatics in a hat you know? they really yeah really i mean and they, but i guess that just shows the types of games out there uh, but going back to what you were saying before i think the expectation is that you you use the scenarios in call of cthulhu like if someone someone had never dm call of cthulhu before or was quite new to call of cthulhu and said hey do you want to join, join my game i'd be like yeah okay what, what are you going to run he's like oh i've made it up myself <laughs> i'd be like all right then <laughs> and i would give it a chance and but i would fully be ex- expecting it to be a bit crap because investigation takes a lot of time to plan and i think you know if you pick up some of the call of cthulhu resources out there you haven't just got an adventure but you've got an entire back history of all the characters and the location and the the Mm. artifact and they all fit together really well so if you talk to anyone they're going to give you this jigsaw piece Mm. which if it's a good scenario which many of them are will fit perfectly into an overall picture Mm. and through the the course of play you may not find all the pieces but at the end of it you'll be able to see this that there is a picture at the end of Mm. it whereas if someone's just winging it you can tell that you know the pieces don't fit together and often come from different jigsaw pieces anyway and even you find all of them there's nothing coherent to be seen and it's just it's frustrating and it's not what people want from that style of play so I, i uh, it, it definitely can be done. I mean, I have just over a weekend written a scenario which has been published. It's definitely doable, mm. and I'm by no means an expert. You know, anyone can do this, mm. but it's not something you could win. Yeah, and there's there's also an expectation as well. Sorry, in, like, not something I could. Win. <laughs> like I'm sure some people can do it, but oh, I don't think it's um it's something know. that should be done. I don't know if I want to meet that sort of person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what other plots do they have in mind? Um, so another another thing I think you can do as well, this is something I, I plan on doing myself, is I want to run an investigation game in D&D. I want to, to run an investigation uh, plotline. And so I can't just take a pre-written adventure or whatever, but uh, well, what um, I can do is Banquet take... the Damned is um, yeah. the one that we played. That's an investigation in D&D. Well, what you can do is take an investigation that is written in another system or another setting or whatever and take the 
the plot points and things like that and just reskin them and say, right, what is the structure here? Because investigation is about structure. It's not necessarily about the exact story. Uh, I think that's where people get too bogged down. So, well, this can't happen here. It can't happen there. And as, if you think about a structure and as plot points um, that are simple you know, counters that you can move around, that you can reskin them however you like, really, and it should still work. So you could take a Call of Cthulhu system that's that's written for the 20th century and go right okay do the do the players absolutely need mobile phones for this to happen um and if so okay we'll reskin <laughs> it as they have magic stones or what the fuck you know what i mean you know, they use the message spell or something it's not insurmountable and you can let someone else do the heavy lifting but also you're buying into this culture and role-playing has been going now for 40 years and chaosium i think was one of the first companies to come up after wizards of the coast sat well uh tsr and and publish seriously um, and not just do Dungeons and Dragons knockoffs. And in both of those, you have this culture going forward. It's like, well, how did you face the Tomb of Horrors? How did you, uh, what did you do when you went to um, the Keep on the Borderlands? All that sort of stuff. And people will know what you're talking about. And it's much more the case in Call of Cthulhu and Chaosium that, that people say, like, well, have you played Masks and Naliathotep? I think everyone starts with the haunting. Like, you know. Yeah. That that's you know almost the way that people get into Call of Cthulhu. It's always asked in the forums, "How do I get into Call of Cthulhu? Play the haunting." <laughs> <laughs> so then everyone has that shared experience as well. I think that's that's a, a large part of it. It's not just about you people around a table or on Skype, or whatever. Is you're also in joining this wider community, and I think that's a really potent thing. So using pre-gen adventures things like that should never be seen as a cop out. Should never be seen as like a way of avoiding work, because certainly in the way I run adventures using a pre-gen is far more work to me because I have to know it. I have to read it. Back <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you have to, you have to read it. You have to map it out yourself. I think you have to sit there and go for right, What are the important parts? What needs to be where so that you're not just leafing through the book. But not everyone it. does that. Like, I mean, I've sat down in a game where someone lit, you feel that the DM actually hasn't read the pre the the scenario <laughs> and is just literally taking you through it as you go page by page and just you know reading out the box text and going oh there's a there's a monster here so I guess you're going to fight it like and I mean that's more painful than you know I think oh, for God's sake just make it up like I'd, yeah I'd, I'd rather you do that I've done that on uh, two and a half occasions I've I've run two Star Wars box sets and I ran them absolutely deadpan straight out of the book no prep whatsoever and it was horrific. And the only reason I did it was to convince Biddy to run Star Wars again. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard really good things about yeah. um, Biddy's Star Wars game. But I think, again, he had a very strong background in mind. Like, he had this whole world or universe that this is what's happening, this is what mm. you're doing. You're here. I mean, you you guys just chose to stay in the first room or something, I think, for what I understand. But I think but because there was this background behind it and this wealth of... Um, history, which was just clear from the way he presented it, it was re- a lot of fun for you guys. I don't think it was very fun for him, from what I understand. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah, I think he, he has different feelings about it, which yeah. was very... Um, um, uh, uh, he, yeah, he expected us to um, sort of have a bit of character interaction, then sit down, shut up, and get on with the story, and we had two hours of completely subverting it, but getting back, but getting to the same place that he would have got us to oh, anyway, yeah. yeah. But this isn't about Sword Knot. This is about um, how we roll and Joe Trier, uh, horror writer and GM extraordinaire. So to stop this becoming a complete ramble cast, because we've been recording for about half an hour now and about 15 minutes of that is bloopers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got some questions okay. that I've, I've had from various places. So, um, 
I'm sorry, I haven't written down like the, all the sources and things. So if you hear your question, good. If you don't hear your question, it was boring. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we've been talking about structures. This one seems pretty good. With horror being linear in nature, how do you manage that in an RPG and make it seem like it's open and fun while leading the players in the story? God, um, especially my leading players. Like I think, I don't think horror is that linear. Like I think I, a lot of horror is fundamentally sandboxy. Like you know, think of I don't know a film like Scream. Right, there's murders going on. The the players are in a position where they either are directly affected by the murders or having to solve the murders. Hmm. And wherever they go, whatever they do, the murderer is going to act again. And how they react or don't react to that murder depends on what's going to happen next. So I, like I don't think horror really is fundamentally linear. See, I I, I think that that's that's possibly your approach having done it a lot but certainly i i I have thought of it as being very linear that this happens and that happens and the plot must continually get tighter and tighter and tighter until you reach the end where you 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 found out what what is there and you need to be able to put the the plot hooks and the clues in front of the players and things and so that does seem very linear and it's like how do you get the players to then approach the next um clue the next plot hook the next point where things happen i guess i mean that I mean, this is a huge question because you could, you could kind of go into like, how would you run this particular type of scenario? Like, you know, with a monster or with a location or with an investigation. And I think, but I think it probably comes right down to sort of player buy-in and GM buy-in. So there's a, if you're playing an investigational horror, you sit down at the beginning of the game, maybe with a session zero, maybe not, but you're basically saying, the DM's saying, right, I'm going to present to you an investigation. So maybe there's going to be a series of murders. Maybe there's going to be some sort of haunted object or a haunted place and you as players need to engage with that mm. so you know if 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 you have to go and hunt down the missing ring please don't go off and like you know start up a coffee shop or start <laughs> murdering npcs like i think there is a fundamental buy-in the players have to buy into the dm story and the dm is going to have a story at the end yeah. of it as well i think i think there's there's two parts to that is the dm has to have a story they want that the players want to buy into but also the players have to say i will create a character who will have buy into that, like who will have a reason to, because too often people go, Oh, bring whatever character you like, you know, it's fine. And we'll just go, all right, you meet in a tavern on you go. And it's not, it's, I think the single question you should always ask of people. And this is something I haven't done. And it's a big mistake that I've made is ask the very simple question. Why are you the kind of idiot that's going to follow this storyline? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, so the biggest, so I've just released it, this, this scenario called the Idol of Thath. Um, and it's all about a missing artifact. So there's the uh, Boston Museum of Fine Arts, in which is a real place, and it's in a, it's set in the 1920s. And somehow an artifact has been stolen. It doesn't look like it's possible to have been stolen. It's a completely locked room mystery. Um, no one understands how it's been stolen. And it says in the first paragraph of the text, the players will need to choose a character who would be invested in that. Yeah. And I give some options like, could you be a PI? Could you be a friend of the manager? Could you be someone from, you know, the, the museum itself or mm. from the university? Like a, there's a whole load of lists and, or they could come up with their own, but yeah. if they want to play like a hobo or, um, I don't, you know, Ken, like, yeah. <laughs> they're just not going to buy into that whoa. scenario. And it's like, yeah, whoa, something's been stolen. Whoa. <laughs> um, but um, not not just like it's just why not are they work, not just the why they're going to buy in at the start because a PI, for example, the, the the perfect example from Call of Cthulhu is PIs, PIs and bloody archaeologists. They're, they're just broken classes. So, okay, the PI is being is being paid to investigate. Why is he the sort of person who isn't going to look at it and go, 
this is past my pay grade. Why is he going to keep yeah. going? You know, why are they going to actually, you know, keep investigating past the point where a sensible person would have noped out of a long time ago? But then actually, you know, we've we've just released a, a, a scenario called Blackwater Creek and the character I played very much did that. He right along, the whole way along, he's like, whoa, this is horrible. I don't think I want to do this anymore. <laughs> and and as, as the scenario progresses, he kind of does start noping out of it. Yeah. But, uh, but his reason for, for being involved in it is his, his immediate plot, plot hook is really weak. It's like he needs the extra credit or something. Yeah. But that uh, was intentionally so. And it, but it, but it he's didn't... got authority figures who are there telling him what to do. And exactly. he's, he's going on there. And so he has a character arc to say that when he does nope out of it, or when he does get to that point where he's 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 making his own decisions, it's a rebellion against authority, and it's just like he's making his own mind up, and it's an actual character arc. And also, there's there's two things that need to be bear in mind with that character is that first one, I didn't stop the story, so although he was crap at archaeology and crap at investigating, um, and didn't really was had no interest in the investigation at all as a character, me as a player knew exactly what to do and who to talk to. And so I would mm-hmm. create situations where this completely uninterested character would still further the plot yeah. and create interesting situations and not either annoy the DM or annoy the other players or grind the, the plot to a halt. Yeah. And when it came to a certain point where actually I didn't want to risk or make a risk, then I, again, I didn't ruin the game for myself, mm-hmm. the other players or the DM. Like I think that was, it was a really complex it's, character to play for something that was so stupid it, it's it's the blessed idiot thing it's inspector yeah. gadget you know he doesn't ever do well but when he fails like he'll reveal a plot point something will happen like yes he'll crash into a wall or whatever but then that will be uh it'll it'll set a, a shelf to collapse or something and and there was a secret door behind this like he's failing forwards and so by not being interested in the plot you can be aggressively not interested in the plot as a character and still think to yourself, how am I going to get clues out of this? How are we going to move things forward? By me not giving a single <laughs> yeah. fuck. <laughs> and and I, I really wouldn't recommend that that type of play. And I think if you go back to um, the, the question about horror being linear, I, I don't think it is at all. But I think it does work within a sandbox. So, for example, with the... Um, the scenario that I've written, for example, they're presented with a problem. So right at the beginning, this has got missing. Mm. So then they, as players, are presented with options. So they can talk and investigate the, talk to the people who were there or not there. They can investigate the room itself and that will give clues. And those clues will then lead to new locations. And so they choose if and how they're going to investigate those new locations. And depending where they go, they will receive or not receive new clues and meet new people, which again takes them somewhere else. Mm. And gradually they should be building up a picture of, of, of what the real story is. Mm. And when they get to the end of that clue chain or plot, plot thread, they will need to make a decision about what on earth they're going to do. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, a typical Call of Cthulhu scenario, it might be that cultists are raising this huge, you know, abomination and somehow they need to stop it. But at no point am I saying, or the, is the keeper should be saying, right, you have to go here now. Yeah. You're saying, look, there is a clue that leads you here. Um, but there should be multiple clues in multiple locations and multiple ways of interpreting those locations. Yeah. I think that's, that's, a thing that that comes across in feel it, it, and, and in the presentation is that sometimes it seems very linear because they're going from one place and get to the next place and getting the information they need, and it's the next place to get the information, they need, and then it's the next place to get the information they need, and it is building this picture. But what's lost is the prep or you know the 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 parallel lines of thought where you're thinking, well, actually that clue that they just got 
uh, was in this other place that they forgot about five sessions ago because for whatever reason they decided it wasn't important well you can get a lot of people very angry about this so there is there's there's definitely two strands of thought so there's one strand which is much more uh, would be a nice way of presenting it but let's say narrative over investigation so let's say i've got three clues um, and they exist here here and here so maybe i'm going to put one in the museum i'm going to put one in a newspaper archive i'm going to put one on this npc mm. but what if the players don't go to the the library well i'll just move that to here and put it here instead mm. and and that creates a very smooth narrative but again you are taking away player agency and a lot mm. of people will be very annoyed that it almost feels like no matter where they go they're going to find the same three clues yeah, and I think that creates a very neat and very pleasing narratively um, story for both the players and I'll give you the, the DM. But again, you're taking away challenge and player agency. Yeah. So the other way of playing, which I think is is much more common in the older Call of Cthulhu scenarios, although you definitely get it today, even in the scenarios I say that I've published and played, is the idea that there are ten clues. Mm. And they are here, 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 here throughout this place. But that's where they are. And if you don't get them, you don't get them. And maybe there's there's a, a time limit. And if you haven't found various clues along the way, the end, the finale is going to be very, very different and maybe even impossible. Yeah. But that can create something very frustrating. So I think it really depends mm. on your players. And I think my most, most recent scenario actually has options for both style of play. Yeah. Well, also in, in, in horror as well, there's this... Uh, and it, I think it's very much especially has been characteristic of um, Chaosium and Call of Cthulhu is uh, a TPK is not necessarily a bad thing. It might be the natural end point of, um, of the journey. It might be where you expect to go and all the players are expecting to die. And if they all get to the end and die, then that's, that's a victory. Again, yes and no. Like, I mean, I, I've played a game with a keeper where it did feel that no matter what we did, we were intended to die and I and I, I I felt a little bit cross at the end to be honest that I felt well I don't you know I think we did everything right we played carefully and I didn't feel you know the Lovecraftian impending doom and nihilism of the will I just felt that I was being yeah railroaded to a death that I didn't think was very fair so I think the amount the amount of clues you get increases your percentage chance of being able to figure <laughs> yeah. this thing out but that percentage is never set at zero and never set a hundred. You know, if you if you yeah. get all the clues, you still don't have. You know, you're going to win this, and it's going to be fine. Um, but if you've steamrolled through everything, you've got maybe like thirty percent of the clues that got you just enough to get you to where you need to be. It should be so unbelievably hard because you haven't been able to prep. Yeah, I mean, yes, you know, and again, it comes down to styles of play. I mean, some people just like a very pulpy game where they it doesn't really matter what they do, they'll find relevant clues and it will lead to a really pleasing, fun ending, hmm. which they enjoy and everyone's had a really good night. Other people prefer something way more gritty, whereas ultimately they're probably not going to find all the clues and they're probably not going to have a pleasing ending and they're probably all going to die and or go insane. <laughs> and I think those two style of plays are definitely both very valid and both really exist within the Call of Cthulhu genre but you really need to know your players yeah. you can lead some very upset people and some very unsatisfied people if you um, lead them down the wrong route I think what you're saying is as part of your GM prep when you're writing stories the first thing you should do is ask your players what kind of story do you want to play I think yes and no I think ultimately people don't really necessarily know what type of game they want to play I mean you can say well I'm, I like killing stuff I like investigating well, they might not know what they like to play I think when you played a few games with them you'll begin to see what they respond to and what they not respond to and I think um, a lot of quote unquote beginner scenarios for Call of Cthulhu which is what we seem to be talking about quite a lot yeah. is a uh, 
um, allow the players to dig their own grave. Mm. And I think you can see how they respond to that. Um, let's say if you play The Haunting, which is a, you know, the game that most people start with, um, or say my game, The Idol of Thoth, I think you'll pick up as the scenario progresses what they're enjoying and what they're not enjoying. And you can really tailor how the finale is going to be and which, what you choose to play after that. And there's a whole wealth of different types of scenario for the people who enjoy more pulp and people who find more kind of purist and a whole load in between. Mm. I mean, we, we cover the, the linear stuff and it's, it's all, it's your mileage yeah, varies. I don't, you know, I, don't, just, I just don't think it is very linear. I think that you end up with a very pleasing story at the end of it. Probably the biggest thing to take, the biggest thing to take from it is whether you, play something which ends up with what's in the GM's mind from the beginning or if you let your players make the choices. Yeah. And I think with horror, maybe people, a lot of GMs or maybe GMs which are starting out kind of think, right, well, this is a story I want to present and so I'm going to lead the players by the nose through these clues. Yeah. And if they choose not to take those clues, well, I'm either going to punish them by TPKing them or they're just going to have a very confusing story. Whereas... Really, I think investigation should be much more about what the players investigate and then turning that into something which is a whole new story. Yeah. Not, not necessarily moving clues around, but just about, well, what could happen then? So they didn't go to the, the museum, they didn't pick up this magic scroll, or what's going to happen next? Like, let's make a new story. Like, it could still yeah. be cool and still be fun. You don't need to punish them for making a new story. Yeah. Um, I think that's something a lot of people sort of will, will, will get. I think wrong, um, and I'm going to use the word wrong, um, about horror is that, I mean, I used to think this as well. It's about taking away player agency. It's about that feeling of hopelessness or that you are this very small thing in a very large universe. And there are ways to make those things feel like that, but not actually take away the player agency, not, not actually just go, no matter what you do, you are going to die. And it's just how well you face it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and if, and I think that's for more from films. Like if you're watching films, it looks, there was a writing team that wrote, wrote <laughs> the whole thing out and said that there was only one way this could ever go. And it really is about putting the, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a very simple hook, um, to get you invested in the characters so that you care about the character and then put that character through the, through the ringer and either they live or die or whatever, but nothing that they do, almost nothing they do makes a damn bit of difference. And in like, the hardcore horror genre, they are going to die. Um, th- bad things will happen to them and there is nothing they could do about it. There never was. And it's that kind of that, that really bleak horror thing. Um, you know, thinking of like Blair Witch and all that sort of stuff. Nothing you do is going to affect. But the you can still have a really good game where that's the end result. But I think you really came up with the word, the, the phrase that player agency. So, by presenting a really realistic world with really vivid NPCs and really intriguing clues, it doesn't matter if they're going to end up trapped in a wood with a cabin being beaten to death by a dead witch. Like, that may be <laughs> the end goal that's probably going to happen. But the whole investigation of how they get there is, can be really fascinating and really fun and really um, novel. And it's if player agency is involved and they're really in control of what they do and who they talk to and how they go about the investigation, the ending is going to be the ending. But as long as they've got control of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's say, you know, the the cultists are going to summon a god. It may be very, very different, even difficult, even impossible to stop them summoning the god, although that does sound to me like a terrible scenario. But as long as they've got a chance to interact and have fun along the way, I think you should have something that is better than a, a very linear 
death <laughs> over four hours of yeah. boring play. So you can have um, it's it's not just about. I think people say sandbox is like where you have a, a, an entry point or several entry points, and then uh, it's just snaking fractal, um, you know, uh, pathways where everything that anything, anything could happen uh, could happen and branches off, and you need to think about all those things. And yeah, that can happen. And people see see linear as being there's a, there's there's one entry point, one pathway. They do that, but there's a hybrid of the two, and that's what you, I think what what everyone ultimately tries to get towards is there are one or many sort of entry points to the story. Then it all branches out, and then as they encounter things, it sort of narrows back in again. They're they're trying to get information to narrow down the things that they can do to say right, what do we do next in a world where I could do anything what am i actually going to do um what is the most sensible thing to do what is the best thing here what is going to get us this thing what's best for my character and try and narrow those things back down again so that you have then these several exit points and depending on the i suppose the tone that you want to set in your game is it one exit point is it several and and being able to not not shepherd people towards it, but have them make decisions that in your world lead to that narrowing and that. Well, so a great example is um, Uncle Timothy's Well, which we played um, with sort of you and Kate from Swordnet Radio and Dave and myself as as GM. So you were presented with a a, a huge manor. Um, there was definitely something going on. You all mm-hmm. knew that there was NPCs to interact with, and there were clues spread around the manor. Um, but there was also a, quite there was a timeline, and at various different points, some these things would happen behind the scenes, and how you interact with them would affect what happened with those things. Mm. And actually, I think Dave did go around finding clues, but didn't certainly didn't get anywhere near to finding all of them. Mm. The big bad was certainly not really defeated in the way that I'd imagined. The ending was not in the place that I imagined, nor in mm. the way I imagined. <laughs> but because you know, I understood the story. What you you guys, what you you dudes did, <laughs> created something completely unique and would never happen again if anyone played Uncle Timothy's Will like it. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there was a railroad. I don't think it was linear at all. Um, there were different signposts and clues spread throughout, which some of which were found, some of which weren't. But it was much more. There was just a story. You know, you stepped into this world where someone had been killed and more people might get killed. What did you do? I mean. It, kill each other apparently <laughs> that was you know yeah um well i think uh the way which because you, you you gave us uh sort of pre-generated characters yeah. let's let's run and, with and that. i established conflict from the beginning that yeah. wasn't um and to, to to me like i thought the plot line you gave me and this is going back to player agency versus well buy the fuck into my plot please was you you gave me a character who was pretending to be someone else yes um and wanted to avoid attention and, you know, didn't want to answer the questions, didn't want to, because he'd get found out, but also had decided. So like, uh, well, I did it. I, I actually said, well, I want to be away from people. So I went, uh, I went into the woods and so I'm just going to camp out here. And so no one asked me any questions, but you also gave me a character who had decided that he was going to pretend to be this guy based on the opportunity placed in front of him. You know, the guy dropped dead on the golf course or whatever. And, Want to do it? So he said, "Oh, I, I'm about his size. I think I could probably, you know, wear his clothes, and I, I think I know his voice well enough." Um, so you gave me firstly someone who didn't want any attention and wouldn't want to interact with anyone ever, but then also can't help himself when an opportunity is in front of him, so he can't help follow his nose, um, and so hence why he goes and then interacts with people and and, and does what he does. Um, so I think that's what then led to 
all these different things. You had lots of those those characters who a didn't want to do anything, but also couldn't help themselves from doing things. So the, I think the only person who was professionally nosy and would definitely <laughs> want to find things out was the one who did. Whereas I think me and Kate were sitting there just burning the place down. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it it was designed for you guys, really. So you know, I've I've heard Swordnut Radio and I've played with you guys before, and I know that. To put, I mean, you, you thrive on chaos and you thrive on this sort of social interaction that comes from it. And so it was, you know, a storm in a sandball or whatever. Like it, it was created to be a very um, chaotic social situation that everyone mm. would have fun in. Yeah. Uh, which we did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this next question. Uh, how do you do suspense? Um, it's weird uh, in a tabletop game to have suspense. Yeah, and it's difficult to manage as well. Like, I think people have said, like, you know, how could you possibly be scared sat at a table with your mates? Hmm. And I think probably actual horror is really rare. And I think we've probably had moments of it, but I think being genuinely terrified is probably, first of all, not something that's really achievable. Yeah. And and I'm not saying it isn't at all, but it's definitely very, very hard. And also, I'm not something sure if it's something you really want to cultivate i'm not sure if that's something that's fun yeah but i think the idea of being like on the edge of your seat Mm. and really not sure either a what's going to happen next or b how the hell i'm gonna (laughs) get out of this or what i'm gonna do here i think is a really really good thing yeah there is there is a very very big difference here i think as well as in what you want to get at and be clear i think in what kind of horror you want to and what kind of suspense Because I know how to make people afraid, like in in a personal setting. I I can literally flip a switch and make someone afraid um, by my body language, by my actions, by whatever. Um, And I've maybe not over Skype, but (laughs) yeah, and not not over Skype, but um, but not in a storytelling sense. In a in a in a personal like like, that's something, and it's not something you want to do to no, it's not. It's it's not pleasant at all. Like it's not. That's not really what you want to play. It's something. If you've ever if you've ever done um, sort of hardcore self defense training stuff, it's about learning how to deal with um, your adrenaline responses and things like that. So when you get scared, you have an adrenaline dump and nothing works anymore, and you're you know hyper and all that, and you need to train at that point. Because that needs to be your happy place. That needs to be what you're used to. And people do all sorts of weird stuff. Like they've got, you know, you have to turn up to training with uh, pictures of your loved ones. Uh, and yeah, you know, I people throwing, I go into any of that. Yeah, <laughs> like people throwing water on you. They're screaming at you. Like it's not something I want to do again. Uh, and it's a harrowing experience. It's not, not something you're supposed to enjoy. But the idea is it's something that the soldiers do. It's like getting very emotional and tired and whatever and still doing it. Because you need to be aware that that's going to happen. You need to for the fact of that to be something you can operate in and it's not something that's fun at all and so if you're worrying about suspense and fear and all that sort of stuff understand it is social suspense it is enjoyable suspense and enjoyable fear that you're trying to cultivate it you're not trying to you you might want to disgust your players a little bit with you know just body horror or whatever but you're not trying to actually make them throw up well it's it's something like it's a real novel experience like i don't know if you've seen the latest spider-man homecoming and mm. i don't want to give spoilers but there's a certain door that opens in that film and the main character sees something and i was like whoa like i i wasn't expecting that and i have no idea what's going to happen next like I really was on the edge of my seat. Like, that's incredible. Mm. And I think that's what you want to cultivate. So I think you want to create situations and create storylines that lead people into very, very difficult situations. And I don't mean, like, difficult as in, like, something they don't want to have to deal with. I mean, mm. like, wow, how how do I get myself out of this? Or yeah. how do we solve this? Um, 
And it's more than just making a situation and having no idea how to go. You know, you've got to present tools, yeah. however obscure, of ways out of them. There's a very cheap way of doing things and, and um, creating tension or whatever. And it's just putting things in place that are genuinely uncomfortable. You know, things that, you know, like you say, people don't want to address. But you're not doing this sort of thing like... Um, uh, you're not, you're not sort of making them choose between, you know, their, their mother and their wife or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, say, so one of them's dying of cancer and you can kill one of them. It's not that sort of thing. That's because harrowing. That, because that wouldn't be, and it wouldn't be fun either. Exactly. Yeah. But, um, and I think it's more than just, you know, um, you're trapped in a room. There's no way out. There's no air. What are you going to do? Cause I'd be like, well, I don't know. Like, um, if you listen to Blackwater, Blackwater Creek, which is one of our most recent scenarios, it's a very slow build. Like, gradually we realize there's things wrong in the town and we begin to investigate what they were. And then we start getting infected. And it's like, well, maybe there's a cure. And the more we find out about this infection, the more worrying it gets. And by Mm. the end, you're placed with some really difficult choices. Um, and I, and generally didn't know what was going to happen. In some cases, it comes down to a dice roll. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you listen to our D&D arcs, we play Curse of Strahd. Um, and recently they've really, really angered Strahd, who set some very, very powerful minions after them. And as a DM, I roll in the open. Mm. Um, I don't fudge rolls. Um, and genuinely, like, they were on the very, very low hit points, very, very dangerous enemy. And I'm like rolling the dice and I have no idea what's going to happen. And because I roll in the open, the players are like, shit, this, what actually is going to happen? Like Joe doesn't have a plan. Like this is, mm-hmm. and that was really suspenseful. I mean, it could have ended in, in May and you'd have to wait and see if it ends in a TPK or characters dying, but it was genuinely really edge of your seat. I think you have to be brave as a GM to roll in the open, uh, but it does create that genuine suspense because uh, I, I think something that, that's been lacking in, the D&D games for us is a sense of the characters can die because everyone knows that I love telling the story. Everyone knows that I want them to keep, <laughs> keep having character moments and all that. Um, and so there's, they'll get to maybe zero hit points every once in a while, or whatever, but they don't really seem afraid of it. They just seem sort of resigned, whatever. And it so means I, I don't get to play for the next go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm rolling death slaves. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's, 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 there's not a lot of, uh, of jeopardy there. They're not really thinking, Oh, it's just the end of this character. It's not. And, um, I found that in order to put that back into you know, that suspense back in, I had to kill one of them. So they go, Oh, right. Okay. This is possible now. So, but I painted myself into mm. that corner, um, by not rolling the open, by not saying, well, the die roll happens. It happens. Uh, and if it just so happens that you die, then you die. Um, and because you've externalized that, they're not thinking, how is my GM thinking about how this is going to go? It's just the, the dice could kill me here. And we've, so I mean, there's, there's story suspense definitely. And there's like, we've talked about these kind of like dice rolling suspense. Um, we've had a, certainly on our, on our Reddit page, or maybe not Reddit page, maybe on our Facebook page, on our Twitter, we've talked a lot about, um, do you roll in the open and how do players feel about fudging? And I don't fudge at all as a DM, or certainly not with a dice anyway. Everyone's convinced that roll 20 can be hacked. It can't. <laughs> it, really can't <laughs> it cannot be done. No, um, but that's something that, that's the choice I make a DM and it's definitely not wrong or right. And it definitely creates some really suspenseful situations, but it could also, you know, if, if, if maybe I weren't so experienced in balancing encounters or dealing with <laughs> deaths and death saves, it could create a really unfun situation. So I think carefully managed and, and know your players as well. But if you're less experienced, you've been doing this for like 20 years. Oh, easily. Yeah. 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 Um, Absolutely, probably. I've been doing it for five. And so the first time I tried to, balance an encounter 
using the maths in the book. They go, right, uh, there's this many players at this level, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> What's my CR? All that. And right. It did not work. It was so unbelievably underpowered and underwhelming. I wanted it to be set at a very challenging thing that they would do. So I, I went, oh, where's the challenging column? Right. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it cut what I had got in my head. Uh, so the tactical situation that I'd, I'd planned, you know, there's houses here, there's creatures mm. here, whatever. Um, and it halved what I could do. It cut it in 50%, halved what, what I could do. And it lasted like 10 minutes. They blasted through everything and it was just nothing. But did they have fun, though? No. Oh, it was, it was, <laughs> oh that sounds rubbish. <laughs> no, the, the fun was the aftermath where, where like weird yeah. things were happening uh, and they had to figure out what was going on. But the actual balancing of it was just why. I wouldn't so say now, the maths is wrong, though, but um, it's definitely an art, though, isn't yeah. it? Like, it's not. You can't just use the math and expect it to work. Yeah. So for for me, it's it's monster hit points. Um, I don't fudge any other things, but uh, like the AC or anything like that, because you have to remember that all the time, and you have to keep thinking, "Well, no, that says eighteen, <laughs> and I'm down it to 15. It's it's hit points. Uh, so I will take the hit points down. Uh, and in some cases, I'll just forget that monsters can have special attacks or whatever that are going to just be withering. If I've and it, normally the mistake is I go too high with it. <laughs> so you can always reduce them. And if it's too low, then make it a unique monster. You can do something else. But so there's that fudging that does go on. Um, and you, it's like managing suspense, isn't it? Like, I think there's definitely a, a really good argument to say that the monster dies at the best point for it to die and not when yeah. it runs out of hit points. <laughs> but then, I mean, I come from a war games background. I mean, growing up, I played Games Workshop and Warhammer and 40k and things like that. And it, it feels very fundamentally wrong for me as a player if I just feel that it doesn't really matter what I roll, but the DM's just going to arbitrarily or maybe yeah. not arbitrarily, but just decide when it dies. And for me, a lot of my enjoyment comes from, cause I'm a power gamer. Like I like making characters. I like playing with the rules. I really like games like Dark Heresy where it's very rules driven and I get, a, I feel a bit cheated. And this is my problem. And this is the game that I like. Mm. I like it to play as a war game. I like to, have, you know, if it was me, I like to have the hit points in the open maybe even the ac at the open and play Jesus. it a bit like a war game and if i die i die because i'll have had a really good time doing it yeah but that's just that's the game that i like to play which means um i think there's a big there's a good adage isn't there you know no D is better than bad D. <laughs> like i've only i'm an adult you know I've, I've i've got kids i've got very very limited um time for myself and i want to spend that in a game i want to be part of and i think finding that game is really important you know I'm not sure what I would do if I didn't have so many options. Obviously, I get to play when I want to play right now. I've got lots of games going, but... Well, I, I, I do fudge. I fudge a lot, um, but I do and it. you so... in the majority. So yeah. what we've, on our poll on Twitter, which we had hundreds of votes for, I think it was asking players, well, how do you feel about GM fudging? And something like 60% said, I don't mind. Yeah. Um, so, but but if it is if you're fudging, be consistent in it. So, um, for example, I will fudge to create suspense. That is how I do it. To because, create player fun. Like it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's ev- what, I, what I go with is um, I know from – there have been real studies done on this sort of thing, not for, for RPGs, but for, for other things, is that what's most important to the experience that your players have is the last 10 minutes. Um, because that's what they remember. And if they have a boring last 10 minutes, they remember the whole session is boring. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So always leave them wanting more, always create a cliffhanger. And that's why I do fudge things to say, um, or, or, or story elements and things like that. So something happens at the end, either, um, something new crops up that they, they're like, Oh, what are we going to do now? And then, you know, that's where it ends. And it's, you know, yeah. what, you know, come back next week. 
Um, I think that's just so, so important. And I think, I mean, with us, we, we work on an hour. So if you've ever listened to our podcast, yeah. every hour we have a beginning, a middle, and an ending. I could not normally do it. a cliffhanger. <laughs> it's fucking so superhuman. Like, and find out next week what happens. And, you, <laughs> and it's like, and so it's really fun for the players because every hour they go through like a mini plot. And yeah. it's, it's not easy to do, but once you've done it for a while, you get used to it. And also, you know, we've got a really good group of players who not don't just buy into it, but they help generate those kind of, um, Mm-hmm. stories and stuff but you're absolutely right like ending on something memorable and something that's gonna leave them on a high and go oh i can't wait yeah. till next week to find out it's just it's just such a good thing to do but the middle of a combat is not that thing unless it is a point of drama that you've ended on um in, inside the combat or where it switches over like you've got it planned in two phases or something but if you are simply going through a combat with like you know there's, there's 10 cobbles around and you're fighting <laughs> all of them like they've ambushed you and you get to the end and you're like oh right it's 10 o'clock we've got to go home now that's not interesting oh i don't know that sounds perfect <laughs> you, you've got into a clearing and suddenly 10 cobbles pop up from everywhere we'll find out what happens on next week so that sounds that like a perfect ending that's interesting <laughs> but four rounds in uh, some of them are dead some of them some aren't you've done oh, that's when you have like the king kobold arrive or something like that you know <laughs> yeah. or wolves howl or, or so, all the kobolds that you've killed suddenly come to life you know it doesn't but this is this is where like having uh the idea of a listener comes in to say well it helps you focus your thought on like what are we going to do next and how am I going to plan this as a GM? So right, uh, so for me, the last half an hour of every single session that we do is thinking about how do I end this with suspense? And I'm looking for the point at which the players will give me something or I thought of something that can happen in the plot or in the world or whatever that can be a surprise and say, right, how how has their paranoid musings led to this thing here? And sometimes it'll be right at the start of the session. Sometimes it'll be, you know, the start of where they got into that situation. That might be several sessions back. They go, right, okay, I can pull it out now. And that will uh, help me end this session on a bit of a cliffhanger now. I think that's so important is that yeah. in between sessions, if they're thinking about it, they've built enough suspense for you. But I think you could probably expand that to quite a lot of RPGs that I've played over the years have had a lot of waiting time and a lot of, or a lot of scenes which just feel dragged out and boring. And it's kind of like, right, how could I rewrite this scene to add a bit of tension or a bit of suspense or just maybe just like, right, this actually, this is a bit boring. Let's just end this scene here and get to the next one as quick as possible. Yeah. I think traditional or a lot of the traditional ways of gaming do have a lot of quite slow, stories and maybe a quite war gamey as well where you mm. could have um i don't i mean i've played fourth edition and, and I, I war game where i loved it you know a, a 10 hour combat yeah, against God. 12 monsters who have you know 1200 hit points each and stuff and for me i like that but for for a listener no and for i think yeah. most players nowadays i think that's not what they like and actually things like random encounters that have no that are just literally random encounters i think they probably need to go i think yeah combat which has no risk what's the point like you know okay well you're walking down the road you're level five you meet 12 goblins well we all know that those 12 goblins are not going to survive the next half an hour Mm -hmm. we know that the players are not really going to have to expend any of their resources beyond possibly the poor wizard Mm -hmm. who's going to have to use (laughs) up his spells so he feels that he can do anything what's the point in that half an hour like just get rid of it or make it suspenseful you know make what's why yeah. are you doing it? Why is it fun? What's the point? When we played uh, Lost Minds of Fandelver, 
um, which is uh, that's what I had in mind. <laughs> it's, the, it's the last last one I ever ran. It's, it's the I always tell people. Not your was, one. Yeah. I'm planning it for a group of yeah. uh, newbies. Well, it, it was it was on on the uh, How We Roll Discord, wasn't it? And someone saying, "Well, wh- what would you recommend for Lost Minds of Fandalva?" And I said, "Right, the whole thing with the druid, get rid of it." Because you go and there's this side quest where you get, you help a druid get rid of a green dragon, and then there's these things in the druid's grove or whatever that you've got to kill as well. And it's like, it is a good three or four sessions worth of stuff there, and all he does is tell you where this castle is. Unless they're really fun, like because I've 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 if it's fun, yeah, but this is people this talking is not, about yeah. it, and they're like, oh, we we played D and D and we fought a dragon, and like, I mean, I have no idea, I've not read it yet, but it yeah, a lot I, of, I, a lot I of took the memories come from that dragon. I know so that. I took that idea. Of okay, it dungeons and or dragons. You need a dungeon, you need a dragon, <laughs> and um, but you're spending a lot of time getting that. So, so what I did was I said, well, the piece of information you get, it's a, it's a castle. Now, archaeology head on. Hi, <laughs> um, if you have a castle somewhere, people will know about it. People do not forget about castles. That is kind of the point about castles. They occupy interesting places that are prominent and have control over areas. And even if that whole thing turns into a massive forest, people will still know it's there. Um, even hundreds of years, thousands of years. And, um, well, you know, think about like, um, uh, I'd probably say probably not thousands of years. Well, we don't know that on this this world because we haven't had a castle last in more than a thousand years. No, but things like the pyramids, I mean, not maybe not the pyramids themselves, but there have been discoveries of things people have dug up and go, oh, um, uh, Machu Picchu is a good yeah, example. Yeah, completely there. forgotten about those because people don't go back to them. But in this specific area, this is a populated area, people know about it. Um, there is a, a 1,000, almost 1,000 year old castle in the middle of Wakefield that people have sort of forgotten about. But it's still there. You can climb <laughs> up on it um, because there's another nicer one next to it. It's like there has to be a reason people yeah, forgot yeah. about it, you know? Um, because there's a stone one next to it, and this was a timber one that's just got the the ramp left, you know? Um, it's a Motton Bailey Castle, uh, but it's it's in a public park. It's still there. It's a scheduled monument. It's protected. All that sort of stuff. But people don't know about it because there's this nicer one there. So you have to have a reason why people haven't remembered this thing, and there's no reason given there. So I said, well, people are going to know where it is. You've interacted with people who know where it is, the goblins. So that's the thing that you need from the goblins is, and, and the hobgoblins things. They're not just mobs now. They know where this thing is. So maybe you need to leave, leave one of them alive. Maybe you need to go back and question them. Maybe you need to find one. So I just gave that information to a goblin randomly. Um, and then, uh, on the road, they're going through that area that is supposedly, you know, um, being torn up by that dragon. They meet the dragon. They have a fight with the dragon because that's all you want is they want yeah. to fight the dragon. They don't want the six sessions where they fight, fight awakened fucking twigs. And you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> um, you know, or they have to negotiate with this druid to help him do stuff. It's like, no, dragon turns up, tries to kill you. Bad kill. <laughs> that's that's yeah. enough. I mean, I'd probably still argue you could probably make a really interesting investigation around it, but I think having a two or three hour combat. Unless your players are really into that, yeah. like I would be if I was a player. Dep- again, depending on the combat, you know, I like it to be tactical. But mm. um, I think coming back to the thing, it, it's all about suspense. And I think if they really feel that there's a purpose or like, you know, you want them on the edge of their seat. Yeah. You, I don't think, I think with suspense as well, everything has to be important. You you can't have um, a throwaway combat. It's like, oh, you go here, it's a random encounter. Yeah, I get it. That's a part of the D and D lore and stuff, and it's made its way into role playing because of that. It's like there are random things that aren't necessarily connected with what you're doing. But in suspense, I think it, um, certainly in the games that you play, there are these weird encounters, and I can only remember one single actual random type encounter from the whole of your entire podcast. 
Right. Hobo with a chair leg. Oh no, he has a reason for being there. But they don't go back to it, and so it feels random. So I, I understand he's got yeah, a reason yeah. for being there, and like he fits within that that world. I think he was. Just, I mean, essentially, he was a hobo in the, in the derelict building. Yeah, he'd been driven mad by the horror in the attic. Exactly. Uh, but it feels random because he comes out and goes, <laughs> blah, 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 and nearly kills two main characters. <laughs> and I rolled in the open. Like, yeah. he genuinely like he he was rolling crazily. Chair legs in. Um, or furniture legs in how he roll are super overpowered. Yeah. Well, in real life as <laughs> yeah. well. You know, I want to fight a drunken hobo. And <laughs> there's, yeah, there's wielding a chair leg. Yeah. The, well, there's a lot of, um, of, of wisdom to that as someone who's uh, done a lot of work on fighting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is, that is, that is like, pretty legit. Um, so, uh, was it? Owen almost takes down the whole of Innsmouth with his fists <laughs> well he had he had a he had a uh, chair leg or he had, well, he had, a, he had a, something a, a bed, a, like bed, a bed post bed post oh my god um i've never rooted for anything more than i've rooted <laughs> him to commit genocide with a bed post so uh but again there there were stakes you know the, yeah. the whole the whole room was on fire because a player had decided to set the room on fire <laughs> there was uh only one way out which was uh a window with a big jump which yep. basically you have to roll to do which he'd, he'd failed through mm-hmm. and there was a whole load of bad guys piling in the other way so he's got mm. uh, yeah it was a, a very tense situation where we were all rolling in the open and no one knew how that was going to end mm. and it was a really fun piece of play but I think at no point was I being well this, is, this isn't what I planned therefore I'm going to punish you I could have really easily done that um and no point was I, you know, going out of my way to be horrible, but I was like, well, you know, there's six guys in here who are going to attack one by one. These are their stats. I'm going to roll in the open. Let's find out what happens. Like, I, I don't know. There's a rule in battle, uh, in military tactics, which is you always give the enemy somewhere to escape. Because if you put them against a wall uh, and, and in a situation they cannot possibly get out of, they will fight to the last man and your victory will cost you dearly. Um, even if you know you're going to win. Well, that was it. I think Owen had about 10% on jump. He was like, well, if I jump out this window, I'm going to get hurt, which he did. Yeah. And, you know, so spoilers. <laughs> in terms of suspense, if you give someone a way out, um, so it's, it's about sort of, well, if my characters are losing, then it's not fun or whatever, but it's, you choose the manner in which you're losing. You choose um, that that choice between dying at the hands of a load of town folk and jumping out a window and knowing you're probably going to break your leg. But moving on, like in terms of my planning, so I made a hotel map. That room with the window isn't where they started. They'd like run through the hotel going, let's go through this door, let's mm. go through this door. I didn't set fire to the room. One of the players set fire to the room because <laughs> there was no communication. Set fire to the room and jumped out the window, which, you know, he said, is there anything on the other side? There? I was like, yeah, I think there probably is. Probably about 10 foot away. Look, mm. let's look at the city map. Yeah, 10 foot away there is a building. Like, a, None of it was pre- pre-planned. None of it was railroaded. I put them in a situation where I had, well, there's probably this could happen or this could happen or this could happen. They didn't do any of those things. They created their own story, mm. which was epic and suspenseful and tense and none of us knew how it was going to end and <laughs> ultimately they know full well that I am quite prepared for characters to die. I don't kill characters, but characters could die, you know, if, yeah. if, if he had failed his roles or if I'd rolled really well or if, you know, I think we did a, a dice to find out how long it'd take for the room to bend down. Like, there's all these things happening, but ultimately he had complete player agency hmm. and it created a great memorable moment. Yeah. So I think, uh, with, with, I think with suspense, that idea of you can kill suspense by giving no option, um, or by making it seem like it is hopeless. It's, it's so people think, you know, people think about, you know, being hopeless and the world happening to you is, is horror, but that's, that's movies. But in, in, in a, uh, a tabletop RPG environment, 
the player knowing they have agency, knowing they can make choices, but those choices are between something bad and something worse. Um, and trying to figure out how they're going to fail forward. They know they're going to get hit by this, but how do they do it? Like, um, if you ever watched, uh, Young Justice, um, it is a fantastic thing where the bad guys have all got together and said, we know we're going to lose. We know this. So for the heroes, it's, it's an adventure story. For the bad guys, it's a horror story. They know they're going to lose. So they plan for failure. They plan for the good guys to stop them doing what they're doing. And they try and fail forward all the time. <laughs> so there's like, oh, we got this other objective going. And like, or our actual objective is this thing, but we make it seem like it's that. If we get both, that's great. But, you know, failing forward, failing forward. Um, so they're playing a horror game. Um, and I think that is, is something to take, take forward from it and say, well, if you fail in this scenario, you don't necessarily die. You don't necessarily, but you do something you have to live with. Um, you know, it might be jump out of a, a building and have a broken leg, which then for the rest of the scenario means mm. that you've got to cope with this thing. Um, and, and that is, is a source of suspense in itself and it's quite a cheap way of doing it, but yeah. it will work. Uh, and, but, but the player did it to themselves. You know, you gave them this option. You say, well, you know, if there's a thing, you had a chance, you could have rolled. Uh, you could have rolled well. But, but I mean, on top of that, I actually think if he'd fallen and died, he probably would have felt cheated as well. So that's where maybe fudging the dice would have been an option. It, that's something that I don't do as a gem because mm. I present a certain type of play. But that I could totally see that being an option and being a valid one as well to create more fun. If you're, if you're absolutely, you know, thinking like, oh, this fall is, you know, it's a 1d6 fall. He's got, you know, three hit points left. 50% chance he's going to die. Um, or is it 40% chance you're going to die? And so, right, well, okay, um, should we just make it a, a die roll to sort of say how bad it is? And so, and you decide to, to yourself, I'm not going to kill you right now because we're at the start of this thing. But then some people would feel robbed. Like I would say, you know, I think this came up a lot on a D&D thread on Facebook and they said, oh, you know, what, what if the DM's fudging the dice for you? How would you feel then? And I'd say, no, like I, I want to live or die by my choices. If I've jumped out a window, Mm. Uh, I, and you know and I'm 10 floors up don't fudge it for me so I live because it's the beginning of the campaign like I'm an experienced role player I know what I'm <laughs> doing I knew what I was doing when I jumped out the window <laughs> but um, I think the, the it, way it was a situation like, the way you, de- you dealt with because um, my character would have died from a dice roll in Uncle Timothy's Will what you did was give me an option from a different rule set to say one of the Pulp Cthulhu games, if you spend all of your luck. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's that thing of say, okay, well, you can do something here that's outside the rules, but it's not just a case of, like in D&D, you just go, do you know what, let's let's make it this, whatever, and it's just, let's fudge that for a little bit. You can sort of get away with that when you're supposed to be big damn heroes. But to make it suspenseful, it's like you have, there has to be a cost to it. You know, there has to be a, a, like a way of, um, of, of bringing out something that it costs in a way that it is paid forward. And if that's mechanically by saying, well, you have this resource, mm. you have to spend all that resource. Um, or if it's a case of, um, you can, you can survive here, but, um, let's, let's call it D and D stuff. Like you, you can survive here, but now you owe a favor. Like this is a favor from the gods or something like that. Um, you know, you go off into a little cutscene and you sell your soul or something like that. Like here's the choice. You're going to die here. Or I can save you for a price, and and however you want to make that work, you know, or, or with um, uh, Owen's character, for example. Okay, you're going to die here, or you can choose to be absolutely crippled. You know, you you know, uh, you save yeah. your spine. I, mean, I, I can't. I, it was you know, it's one of our first games, so I, I can't remember the situation, but I think, and we we just we went with the rules. So I think yeah. he uh, he pushed his role and he made it, and or didn't. I think maybe he actually didn't make it. So we said that he made the jump. But landed really badly and t- took yeah. this damage, which I think is very much within the rules of Call of Cthulhu. So, yeah. 
Um, it's, it's, it's a take you away from that. Your player dies. Now they have to spend the next 20 minutes rolling up a new character. They're out of the game. Yeah. You have to introduce fun, a new character. Really? And yeah. So they have to find someone in that situation who hasn't had any buy in, all that sort of stuff, which is difficult. So there's a thing of keeping people in the game and not making them feel immortal. Yeah. And I think there's, I think some GMs either choose not to remember or just don't remember that ultimately you, your job or a big part of your job is to make as many people have as much fun for as much time as possible. Yeah. So if you're doing, if you've, if you've got a split party or you're focusing on one person, it's just them having fun on their own 40 minutes and there's five people not having fun. Well, I would say that's not a, you've not done a great job there. Um, so we're segueing into very, uh, very well. The next question, uh, as a DM is a party splitting a help, or a hindrance, and how do you prevent or create it? <laughs> so, um, I've actually, my newest Cthulhu um, scenario, the Idol of Thoth, um, I've done a whole page, uh, or a couple of pages of keeper tips, and linked them with specific points in the scenario. So, um, it, you know, if you have this point, this is an NPC, and this is a way you could roleplay them. Or, at this point, I've talked about splitting the party. And as if you have listened to the podcast, it's something I really advocate. I think it's a really important... Um, tool in a GM's box and I think it's definitely worth considering mm. um, I think it's great for a few reasons I think it can keep uh, you can cover more of an investigation so rather than everyone going to the pub and for three to five people all trying to talk to the barkeep at once which yeah. is just not fun or realistic you could have one group at the pub one group at the or the tavern one group at the shop and one group here one group here and they all get this this time to investigate which moves the story along really far and you, you don't have to worry so much about party balance because you can have people skilled in the same directions but they have different parts of the plot to explore. but even more so it's more funny if you're one person that's great at social stuff great but what if the person who's crap at social stuff now has to do something yep. social and you create a really memorable and a fun potentially fun rpg experience mm. and you're not um, so worried about um combat balance as well because if you split the party in D D, your sums are off you've I know I still split the party. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's much more difficult to then do combat is sure, the idea, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I think and that's I, that's that's from previous editions as well, but yeah, very much. So. If you're in fourth edition, you split your party, you die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that was a you worked as a team, weren't you? you had a striker and a healer and a tank, and it was very you could not have two of each. Yeah, yeah. and it was really based around that. I, mean, I think you could, but again, it it was a very specific type of game. Um, but I, I I think even that aside, the most important thing about splitting the party is you really give everyone a chance to shine. I think with D and D, with with all tabletop RPGs, you often have strong personalities and more quiet personalities and you and you often have people actually are quite happy observing and i think if you are splitting the party bear in mind that actually some people really don't want to take the lead and take the spotlight um themselves but a lot of people do and i think taking Hmm. splitting the party gives everyone a chance to shine gives everyone their own bit of the story which they can take ownership of and have agency for um and i think i would i would recommend doing it as long as you keep an eye on the time. Like if you've split the party and you've got, and you get, you've spent half an hour on one person while, or two people while the other three or four people have sat there on their phones, twiddling their thumbs. Yeah. And that I, I actually don't think you can get angry with them for sitting on their phones. Like you've, you've not managed your pace, right? I think, you know, about 10 minutes, try and end on a cliffhanger or on a decision. So, right, you've got this thing. Here's your decision. We're now going to change to the party yeah. while you think about that decision and we'll come back and you can make it. And I, yeah. I think uh, with splitting the party, you need to have everyone around the table still engaged. So if someone if someone is going, oh, well, it's not my turn here, I'm going to do whatever, um, they, they need to be either 
paying attention to what someone else is doing because they're interested in that story because they're entertained by it or they need to be sitting here sitting looking at their character sheet going what the fuck am I doing it like well yes and no like I think again different people enjoy different things of RPGs and I think um, one of the things that keeps on coming up on, on Facebook and various discussion groups with D&D is like, how do you feel about people using their phones? Well, ultimately, if I'm bored, I'm going to yeah. sit and use my phone. Like, But what I'm saying is that those people need to be not at the point where they're bored. Oh, yeah, for sure. But then some people don't have the attention spans and some <laughs> people just aren't, you know, right, I'm going to go off the tavern, I'm going to buy some potions. Well, I'm not interested in that. So you go and do that for 10 minutes. As long as it's too not too long, I'm happy here reading my player's manual or, you know, God forbid, sat on my phone. And as long as it's not too long, it shouldn't really matter what I'm doing. Like, great if I'm engaging the story. And if you've done a really good job as a DM, they probably will be. But if they're not, well, don't worry. Like, this isn't their time. That's this not their part of the story. It's not their time to shine. Yeah, you're not you're not taking too much time away from someone that they're going to resent it later and go, why did I even go tonight? Exactly, exactly. And I think um, that's a real yeah. Pace is really, really important, and spotlighting is really important. And you know, if they haven't paid attention, well, so what? You can always just do a bit of a paraphrase and say, <laughs> right, so we're we're back on you, Bob. You so while. James has been in the tavern. He's learned this, this, and this. You're in the uh, the alchemist shop. What do you want to do? So it doesn't matter now whether he's listened or not listened or been in the toilet or making a cup yeah. of tea. Like you've now brought him back into the scenario. He's got his chance to shine. You've summarised what's been learned. Like, and I, I'm, I'm a I'm a big fan of having GM aids for things like that because I, I will forget. I will you know I will be absorbed in the story or whatever. Is you've got a GM screen you might have a gym screen uh, or you've got somewhere to hide something set a timer literally have an egg timer yeah, by yeah, you yeah. flip over it's silent they don't know it's there so like a kitchen timer that beeps probably not ideal because then they feel rushed yeah or just like look at the table you know have in mind like that, that actually this person looks really bored and when was the last time they did something oh shit it's probably about half an hour ago right well they need a big moment to shine now yeah but having that timer from the start then means that you can yeah, then lead yeah. it oh, in yeah, a direction. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you're not sitting there going, right, oh crap, how do I end this now? <laughs> you're like, uh, you're, you're conscious that you're leading towards this, this cliffhanger, this point, um, that you're going towards. So splitting the party is a tool though. Like I, I don't, I'd say I probably don't do it every scenario. I probably do it more with bigger groups. Um, but I think it's definitely something that's worth trying and seeing how your group works. But I don't, I don't think you ever say, I think we should split the party. Oh, no, you know, no, no, no. I think you do suggest it very strongly sometimes where you go, okay, well, you've got these things. It sounds like you're talking about splitting up and doing this. Sounds like you're thinking about going over here and you're thinking about going over there. Yeah. So you lampshade it pretty hard. Yeah. But then you've um, got to remember that we're on a podcast and we are on a really tight time scale. So yeah. like we, we often have a lot of guests on and right. So I've got this guest for four hours and that's it. Hmm. And after four hours, we've got to have got to a really pleasant conclusion where that guest character can then leave. Yeah. Which means we have very little downtime. We have very, well, at least we try not to have any wasted time or wasted plot or wasted encounters. And which, yeah, we, and I do, you know, I chivvy people along and I don't, you know, if, if, if people are digressing or, um, go, or maybe hogging the spotlight's the wrong word, but you know, if they're taking, too long with an encounter that no one listeners aren't interested in and the other players aren't interested in and getting bored and actually why not just end this scene now like yeah um but again that's knowing my players and hopefully knowing the listeners as well i think it's a mm. it's a skill that i'm working on <laughs> <laughs> yeah like it, it can, i think it can be intimidating when you're thinking about oh this scene is boring do i end it but then how do you do that without just going oh this is boring stop how yeah. do you end it, you know, in the actual scene? 
I mean, ultimately, we've got the advantage of the edit. So sometimes scenes may have continued on for another half an hour, and I've just gone, you know what, nothing happened here. But um, I think we're lucky, or I'm lucky, that um, my group of players are very aware of an audience and very aware of time. And, you know, they often will even suggest, should we just end this scene now? And I'm like, well, no, no, actually, I want to. You haven't done this yet. I but, think uh, yeah. I, I always I always remember one of my first role playing experiences it was way back in the day, and I didn't play again for years and years and years. I was playing third edition D and D, and I'd just come along, and it was the second session that the the group had played, and one of the players wasn't there, and I didn't know about the convention of the player's not there, the character is ill. Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't know about that, and so I come along and I find these. I've, I've been sent after the party, and I'm joining them now. And I find a sick. They say, well, there's this person who's sick. And it's like, well, I'm going to care for that person. So I spent the, the whole thing like caring for that, that sick person. Like they didn't tell me at any point, like <laughs> there's no way you can do anything because that's a player that's not here. I had no idea. Um, I didn't even know it was, it was a PC. I thought it was, this is a situation yeah. that they have. And so I wasted that whole session. Like, uh, but did you, I mean, did, did you I, have fun doing no, it or did you fit? No, you just, no, I thought that was, that's a, that's the thing my character would do. And, and again, kind I was of new to for it. a reward at the end. So, right. I've looked at this sick person. What do I get? Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> but then again, that, that comes down to group and DM choice. And I think there is a lot of like both over and passive aggression punishment that does go on around some tables. <laughs> yeah. Well, you died. So you've lost a level. You have to start at a level below everyone else. Oh, like, no, like, I, again, like, I don't, I don't want to yuck another person's yums. Like, you know, you play your game and that's the most important thing, but it, that's not for me. Like, Yeah, I think if, if you as a GM are vindictive, you should not be a GM. <laughs> Unless like, your players enjoy you, that. Yeah, you know, you Gary Gygax yeah. was apparently quite a vindictive player. I don't, he'd invented the Tomb of Horrors to literally be vindictive. Yeah. And people loved his games, I guess. Like, uh, But it, it's not... I've heard the opposite. I've heard people didn't like them as well. I've heard that like, people sort of turn up and they, this Gary Gygax and he would like, he will roll for everything it was boring as fuck yeah i mean if you looked at first edition there are tables for everything mm-hmm. yeah, i mean and people some people love that I just it's not where rpgs are now i think i heard a, I heard a um briefly i heard a story where he was at a con and he was running a game and there were uh 15 elven archers or something that, that they were doing their thing um and the players had kind of circumvented them or whatever and then they would roll through combat and instead of rolling as a group or rolling for various things he would roll each one individually <laughs> each each elven archer had a go in this and even if they weren't on the map that sounds like um a, a, another way of playing the game yeah <laughs> it says being diplomatic doesn't yeah. sound like my sort of game and like um, I mean, i'm really wary about playing in games now because i've i've been really lucky enough to both have my own group for a long time which it's very much my style of play i really enjoy it and i've joined a lot of groups that have similar styles of play and i really worry now about you know, if I'm at a convention or going around to play with someone new about what kind of game or what, you know, what am I letting myself in for? Because, you know, do I re- I don't think I've got the patience now to sit down for four or five hours and something that I'm just not going to enjoy. Yeah. Like, I um, just don't want to do it. Let's, let's, let's rapid fire. So uh, we'll start from the top. So uh, what fictional horror character would be the most boring to meet in real life? And if they're that boring, why do they work in fiction? Probably both the characters that I've recently played. I think Ken and Dennis would be infuriating. <laughs> no one wants to meet them or hang out with them. Particularly, particularly Dennis. Like he's, yeah, yeah. 
I think um, from my my point of view, uh, the standard horror thing that is really boring in real life is the corrupt politician, the corrupt cop, whatever. Because in real life, they win. <laughs> they have they have the authority. They have that. Like they don't get brought down. They win. You lose. That is boring, um, or, or in some cases, earth shatteringly bad. Um, <laughs> but you don't have power. But in a in a horror game, there's there's maybe something that come come out of that. Maybe they get the comeuppance. Maybe you can have some agency about that. Um, and that's why we do RPGs, isn't it? To, to turn things on their head. Uh, what is the stupidest thing your players always do? Always do? I don't know. I don't know. You listen to the podcast. What do they always do? Dave and Owen always fight. They always <laughs> yes. find a way to conflict, which always... But uh, I mean, it's stupid. It's, it's always entertaining for everyone at the table. Yeah. Probably other than maybe Dave and Owen. <laughs> to be um, fair. They read the books. Uh, they, in all seriousness... They engage in the storyline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in an RPG game, an adventure game, or all films and things like that, the sensible people, the people who are going to make good decisions, stay the fuck at home. Yeah. They do not get involved. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to investigate this haunted house, actually. No, I'm just going to go to work. I'm going to go and rescue this kitten. So if you're playing an RPG game and you're trying to <laughs> trying to win the scenario and you're trying to go, well, what's the most sensible thing to do in metagaming or whatever, you have already forgotten the entire point of RPGs. You are... The type of person who's stupid enough to get hooked and keep going into this thing. I think, I mean, again, that's, I mean, that's sort of meta stupid, isn't it? Yeah. They kind of have to do that. I'd say probably the thing that's actually stupid that I think they still probably do is, um, attack linearly. So if they see a monster quite a lot of the time, they will just charge at it. And I think, um, maybe because we have such a fast pace on how we roll, so there's not really opportunity to kind of battle over 10 rounds because most combat we do limit to about 10 minutes mm-hmm. and say, so, right, I'm going to use all my powers on it, bang, and then like it doesn't work, shit. <laughs> you know? yep. And I think probably thinking outside the box for combat is maybe something they're not as good I, as, but maybe... The biggest bugbear I have as well is that when you present combat to RPG players, they do combat. Yeah, yeah um, hit it with a hammer. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh so I think the most stupid thing that my players always do is fail to avoid the combat or fail to solve the combat through non-combat means. But then, you know, if you give players a hammer, <laughs> then everything becomes a nail. Everything it? becomes a nail. And if you, uh, if you run an, an RPG or investigation, sorry, a role-play or investigation-based game and not much combat, then when we finally get to combat, well, they want to use all these amazing combat things that they've yeah. been wanting to use for the last half an hour or hour or week. Or yeah. so, I, I can't, again, I can't criticise at all. And um, I, I, I can criticise and I will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, every single combat I do, I just want them to stand up and go, you know, you don't really have to do this, <laughs> you know. Um, so what kind of cult would you like to create in or even out of game? Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> um, um, I... <I've>, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really used cults and I think there's something I probably need to to do more in scenarios I either play or write I think having that you know mysterious controlling organisation behind the scenes is really interesting and I think investigating it from the outside and learning more and more about it can be really intriguing and really satisfying and it's we did it in Innsmouth and I think we had some really interesting role play there it's interesting you talk about control and and this is where I think the like an historical perspective on this comes in is that nowadays you talk about a cult, you're talking about a single charismatic leader who has complete control over their flock or whatever, because that's what we've had in recent years. That's something that we've been pointing out in recent years. Um, and normally because they're foreign and because they're other and uh, it fits a specific news agenda and all that sort of stuff. And there's, there's a lot of racism in it. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of what, how it gets reported is, is very skewed. 
and and the and there's obviously the the established religions who don't want these things to be there and so demonize things and all that sort of stuff and it makes better copy you know it's, it's a single charismatic leader makes better copy you get to name them after that thing even if they don't call themselves that but back in like the I don't know, the 1700s through about 1850 or whatever, there was this massive resurgence in, in belief in other things, in, in, in cultism, in occultism, um, that were still within the Christian faith or whatever. And so it was sort of fine. Like people believed in magic and all sorts and, and summoning demons or whatever. It's called Solomonic magic. And it was considered to be part of Christianity. Um, even, even as, um, astrology is considered fine because it's, it's, that is a Christian magic. Um, and, and, and people don't get this, that that is Christian. And, 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 and so it hasn't been demonized. You know, it's been sidelined into this. Oh, this is a funny thing over here. Um, so a lot of the cults in like the, uh, the 1850s and, and almost weren't about control. They were about people getting together and having community and maybe having their own goals within that. But some of them were hippy dippy, you know, you know, neo communist <laughs> sort of early communist kind of things where they, they had no charismatic leader. And that was the point. Um, or where it was just an excuse to have a swingers party or where it was, um, they honestly wanted to raise demons and things and angels to make the world better or to, to establish truths and find out, you know, things like that. And you can have that thing gone wrong. You can have that thing more sinister, but it doesn't have to be what you think of it as. And, and having a little bit more research on it and say, what kind of cult do I want? Think, what kind of cults are there? <laughs> you know, not just what kind of charismatic leader do I have and why does he live in a compound with loads of wives? <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's, it's more than that. People don't tend, tend to join cults unless they're getting something from it. So what are they getting from it? So I think it's much more interesting to have maybe subvert your, your players' expectations. They think it's yeah, this leader. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think it's, there's, there's lots of really interesting stories that mm. are yet to be tapped in that, in that area. So it's not, not something I've really used for a while, but yeah, something I'd be interested in doing again. Um, I guess in real life. I'm, I'm quite enjoying things like, you know, the cult of Chaosium taking over the world. Like, <laughs> Call of Cthulhu is becoming a much more accepted and played thing worldwide. And I think, um, How We Roll podcast is growing and I think people are enjoying our style of game. And I think that, you know, imitating the bits that they like of our play style. And I think that's really good. And I think people, you know, one of the best things I find is when we get emails and messages basically of people saying, look, you know, I really like the way you do this and we've tried to do it in this way, which I think is, it's great, really. So, yeah. Cult of how we roll. <laughs> <laughs> and should we wind it up there? Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Uh, and one last time, uh, tell the people where they can buy your shit. Okay, yeah. So, um, I run a podcast called How We Roll Podcast, and we play lots of Call of Cthulhu, lots of investigative horror games. We're uh, running through Curse of Strahd at the moment, which is uh, going really well, and we've got some really great guest players. Um, I've recently become published, so you can find The Idol of Thoth, um, or Thot, or tot or however you want to pronounce <laughs> it um, on drive through rpg if you just search for chaosium it's like number one on the the miskatonic repository and it's basically a, a one night investigations about a missing artifact and it'll take you to arkham sanatorium and uh, miskatonic university and to some other really terrible places before uh, ending with a bit of a race against time so yeah definitely check that out and uh, also um, fear sharp little needles uh, published by stygian fox should be out very very soon and i've got a scenario there too so check it out excellent thank you very much you're welcome <laughs> intro music was grind by john paul jones if you end up buying any of joe's published works please do leave him a review it helps other people find it and it helps convince chaosium that they're onto a bit of a winner 
while you're leaving reviews it'd be awesome if you could leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or share us on social media at Swordnet Radio what we really want to do is build an engaged listener base so that we can continue to have awesome interactions with people from all over the world and that is the single best way to do it throughout January and February if you do us a review take a screen grab of it and send it to me swordnutradio at gmail.com or on Twitter at swordnutradio or on our Facebook page just somewhere where I can find it I'll get in touch with you and send you a little goodie bag of merch. And lastly, I'll mention our Patreon again. We don't really want to make a living out of this, but there are other people who do. So if you've got some money you want to support some podcasts, please consider supporting How We Roll, Riverhouse Games, The One Shot Podcast Network, and God's Fall. They're good, entertaining shows that do an important job and improve our community. And if you've got any spare change left over, consider throwing us a buck or two and you'll get access to super secret awesome feed time. Thanks for listening.